team. <clears throat> Good morning. My name is Chris Rojas. I'm one of the elders here at Church of the Canyons. Um, it is uh, it's a pleasure and honor to, to, to serve the Lord by serving you in this capacity. Um, today we'll be returning to where we left off in our study of 1 Peter in chapter 2. Um, please find your way there. And, um, I'll tell you, if, if you went to Faith Builders this morning, <laughs> this would all be a repeat. <laughs> it's amazing how God did that. He just lined up Proverbs 16 to, to study, um, to, prefer, to warm up our hearts and minds um, for the text today. It's incredible. Before we begin reading, let's, let's pray to the Lord and ask him for wisdom. Please bow with me. Heavenly Father, we humbly come before you to ask these words that your Holy Spirit inspired uh, Peter to write down, that they have an impact that goes far beyond moral conduct and gives understanding of who you are, who we are, who are those around us and what we have been called to. I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you that it's true and that it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. May it have a, its washing and purifying effect on us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Uh, so if you would please, uh, if you're able to, please stand with me uh, for the reading of God's word and on what we'll, we'll be meditating as our main text today. Um, it'll be First uh, Peter 2, um, uh, starting in chapter 13. It reads, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right, you silence the ignorance of foolish people, act as free people, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond servants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. You may be seated. So as I was meditating on this portion of scripture, I, I struggled a little bit on how to present it. Um, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's brimming with theology, and it re represents Peter's nature of let's get it done all so well. Uh, in this text, there's eight charges in five verses related to the believer's conduct towards submission. Uh, without context of what Peter wrote leading up to this, we might be left with a dulled passage that, has merely, that boils down to morality. And I could see how someone wa could walk away from this morning thinking, okay, sure, I'll pay my taxes and drive the speed limit. There's so much more to this than that. So you know our, uh, our scripture memory verse for the month. Maybe, maybe somebody's brave enough to say it with me. John 17, 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is the truth. So one of the glorious things that is revealed in those 10 words of Jesus' high priestly prayer is that scripture is self-defining. You can use scripture as a tool to unlock deeper and richer meaning in the texts that you read. I'd like to take a quick moment to fly over using the lens of the scripture that we just read this morning to draw richness out of what was previously written and to, vo to avoid this taking four hours, 
uh, and giving you carpal tunnel syndrome. <laughs> um, I've done a little homework, and if you look in your bulletins, there's an insert, and it's, it's a chart, and I hope you can read it. The, the writing is a little small, but uh, I did look at it, and with my failing eyes, um, I was able to read it, so I hope you can uh, join me with that. So, I, I, so uh, looking at the chart and starting with verse 1 of chapter 1, and you're welcome to open your word too, um, but I, I, this is something I'd like you to take home and, um, and compare it side by side with the word of God. Whatever's said on, from this pulpit or anywhere on this campus or anywhere, for that matter, anywhere, always use scripture to define scripture and make sure that you test the spirits using scripture. And so I, I encourage you to do that. You take this home and, and, and study it. So we find that this letter is penned, uh, and we're, we're just going to kind of rifle through. So you'll see like there's a description next to each number, and each number, it, re- it references a verse. So it starts in chapter one, and it references down in the chart. And so I'm just going to kind of blaze through that. So uh, please follow along with, with me if you can. Um, so we find that uh, the, letter, the letter is penned by Peter, but inspired by Jesus and meant to be received by all believers. It's not only for the Jews, but all the resident aliens who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ. That means that the saved Jew and Gentile are alike. These are kingdom citizens. The title Christ carries with it an understanding that Jesus is the promised priestly king who would free his people and sit on an eternal throne, giving him eternal authority over an eternal kingdom. The kingdom is defended not with flesh and blood, but by God's own power, making it and all its riches and inhabitants eternally secured. Because of that, There's a great rejoicing both inside and outside the kingdom for what God has accomplished in carrying out his perfect plan. These riches are immaterial, making them far greater than what we can weigh and what's scalable um, that's offered here is only by faith, which has no limit. These riches are praise, glory, and honor to Jesus Christ In this mode of operation, the believer achieves their design in glorifying Christ, Jesus. He is the king of kings who is coming back. He's coming back to draw to himself each redeemed individual from this broken world and free them from its snares. Even now, as he approaches, we're experiencing results of this this through faith that is growing day by day. And faith that was before us and given to the prophets who were ambassadors. And they proclaimed what would be evidenced as promises fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. These proclamations would be used to plant faith in the spiritually dead. And by the Holy Spirit, bring life and awareness. Awareness that there is a battle that we didn't even know was going on. This battle is the battlefield of the mind. To the spiritually dead, everything looks the same. Life is fleeting. Like to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. The dead wish to consume. But the spiritually awoken has a new mind, a new vision. We're to stay alert and move in straight paths as we fight through the battlefield to our new home. We've been enlisted in this spiritual warfare as soldiers. But we are returning with a ransom. We are the ransom by the precious blood 
of King Jesus Christ, we have been bought. It was through that victory that the war was won. The king laid his life down and satisfied the grave. He not only was the perfect payment for the sin brought about by Adam's disobedience, but he was so much more and the grave could not hold him. Our king was raised by God and he is victorious. The war has been won. That makes victory over battles possible. We, in, we are encouraged and we are to encourage one another in this truth. The battle is being fought by you and all those who have been brought to life. Each of you carry this same treasure. So we are, t- we are to watch and care for the treasure. Or should I say, we are to watch and care for the treasured. Each soul that has been saved, awoken by the faith, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is a treasure of God's. Now, in chapter 2, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, we have a new culture, the culture of an eternal kingdom. Our language was formerly malice. Now, it is love. Our attitude was formerly deceit. Now, it is truth. Our behavior was formerly hypocrisy. Now, it is humble integrity. Our weapons of destruction were formerly envy. Now, they are rich joy. Our weapons of defense were formerly slander, but now they are praise. This culture is true and perfect, and it's commemorated with a constitution that's the word of God. Excuse me. It's tried and true as the king lived it perfectly as a prototype for every kingdom citizen. Though it brought him to death, he was raised to glory as, prom- as a promise for all those who would follow him. For all those whose lives would be lost, they are guaranteed to be raised to new life in glory. His work established the cornerstone of e- the eternal kingdom. He is the cornerstone. And each life that would be laid down for his glory would not fall to dust, but would be a living stone in the wall of the eternal kingdom. This journey for each individual and collective whole would not be a one-time event at the end of one's life. It would be a lifelong battle that would have its markings uh, in an obvious cadence or a march. It's an unfamiliar pattern of living to the world, and the world will hate it. Through it, believers will recognize other believers, though the uniform pattern of righteous living is not aware, uh, made aware to the war, world, it is very evident to the believer. This uniformity is their new identity, and it cannot be stripped away. They are now numbered as choice members of a select family. They are of sovereign bloodline originating from God and flowing to each person. They have perfectly virtuous fellowship as they all seek the same goal of glorifying Christ in humility. And they individually and collectively are obtained and secured by God. All of this happened to each of them while their souls were lost in the fleshly lusts. And recognizing that they were once as lost as the Gentiles or the dirty dogs of this earth, they were redeemed. Because of that, there's hope for others who are lost. 
They are to remain in the battle. They are to protect themselves from their former ways and protect each other. And at every opportunity, they're to recruit the lost by spreading the gospel as ambassadors of God, just as the ambassadors of God did before them. They are now ambassadors of God. Until the prophecies are completed and fulfilled, God's redemptive plan is still at work. Now, having been reminded of the king of kings, the eternal kingdom, the kingdom citizen called to life from darkness, the redeeming work of God's redemptive plan, our value, our brotherhood, our future, and the fight that rages on, we can study this text with a focus that extends far beyond morality or nationalism. We are kingdom citizens, all you who believe. So, Our first point, if you're taking notes, is structural standards found in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 2. So Peter launches out of the gate to say, submit yourself, or to willfully assume a servant position. Why would the Holy Spirit suggest a seemingly contradictory role to what we just were told in verse 9? We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Wouldn't it be reasonable for one's shoulders to draw back and their chin rise and chest puff out? It would if this were our home, but we are foreigners and aliens in this land, and this is not meant to be ours. By placing ourselves in subjection to those who we encounter, we are being obedient in becoming more like Christ. Our aim isn't to establish the kingdom of of God here. We are sojourners trekking to a permanent home, our home in heaven, the eternal kingdom. We subject ourselves for the purpose of providing evidence to the lost that they might be found. So last week, Chris Ullman talked about the lowliness of Christ. If you weren't here, tune into that sermon. It was wonderful. Jesus was the perfect model. He lived out the word of God because he was the word from God. Being God, he humbled himself to take on humanity. And in that upper room, he made it clear what the Christian life looks like. It is service to even the enemy as he washed Judas's feet along with the 11. That act of submission to the one whose heart was fertile ground for Satan to possess would be echoed time and time again with every false accusation made against him, every insult thrown, with every punch to the face, with every crack of the whip, with each blow that drove the nails deeper and deeper into his hands and feet and climaxing in his submission to the father who would crush him to death, even death on a criminal's cross. Jesus Christ set the model and no matter how low we ever think we've gone, Jesus Christ went lower. God's desire for correct structural standards begins with him and with the redeemed individual. They must be redeemed The next part of our verse 13 helps the believer know how to do this honorably. It's not a self-willed decision. It's God's will and his work. It reads, for the Lord's sake, if if we do this by our own flesh, that would be hypocrisy and leaning back on the old ways of deceit. 
This submission has nothing to do with our will, but everything to do with what Philippians 2.13 says. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The phrase for the Lord's sake is more uh, helpfully said for the sake of the Lord, which translated means by the instrumentality of the master. Our eyes must never come off of Jesus. He's our salvation. He is our sustenance and he is our destination. It is only through him and his model that we can live righteously. So God's desire for correct structural standards starts with one who's been redeemed. Next, it is accomplished through the means and methods of Christ Jesus. Moving to the next structural standard, to the scope of the charge. And picking back up in verse 13, it says, to every human institution. That word institution is the same word as creation. God made man in his own image. And that means that what, that, uh, what was given to man was characteristics that model God's. One of those characteristics is the ability to create. And God uses that ability in man to establish governments and protocols. The call here to the redeemed who are scattered throughout the world is that wherever you are, you are to recognize God's sovereignty in the authority that God has placed in your life. There's no wiggle room here on who you should submit to or who you shouldn't. And we'll get to some practical application on that a little later. So God's desire for correct structural standards starts with one who has been redeemed. Next, it is accomplished through the means and methods of Christ. Thirdly, submission has no limiting factor to the type of institution. And let's move deeper into the structural standards. In the beginning of a series of institutions, Peter starts with government. He'll later move on to relationships, uh, family, and to one another in Christ. Uh, working relationships, family, and to one another in Christ. The first level of government that Peter mentions in the structure is the king. It reads, whether to a king as the one in authority. This would be one who is responsible for making edicts and judgments. The second level of government that Peter mentions in the structure is governors. It reads, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. The believers may find themselves in various stations in the government. They must maintain themselves as separate from the world, yet submissive wherever they may be. That is the responsibility of the believer. The government has a duty to uphold as well. Here, it clearly says that, that the laws and rulings of the king and the activity of law enforcement is designed to punish evildoers and praise those who do right. So God's desire for correct structural standards with one who has been redeemed. Next, it is accomplished through the means and methods of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, submission has no limiting factor to the type of institution and lastly, everyone from the bottom to the top in the structural standard has a submitting role. To wrap up this first point, I'd like us to turn to Romans 13, if you would. And we'll be reading from verses 1 through 7. Romans 13. This is Paul's letter to the believer in Rome. And while you turn there, it's important for you to understand 
and be reminded that we as believers are kingdom citizens first and then of nations. No human law can usurp God's law. You can see that demonstrated throughout scripture. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refused to bow to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel refused to pray to anyone but God. Joseph ran away from Potiphar's wife. Moses' parents hid him and then floated him down the, ba- down the river um, to uh, the Pharaoh's daughter. Moses demanded that Pharaoh let his people go, God's people go. Rahab hid the spies and lied to the guards. Mary and Joseph fled to Nazareth to escape Herod. John and Peter were ordered not to preach the name of Jesus, but they did. When the believer is charged to do something that violates God's law, the believer can be as bold as Peter and John were in Acts 4, 19 through 20, when they say, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, make your own judgment, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. This caveat only comes into play when government mandates what is in direct opposition to God's commands. So now let's read Romans 13, 1 through 7. It reads, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God and an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. You can flip back to 1 Peter 2. Where we'll read our next uh, point in the outline. And it says, uh, the next point is the sovereign standard of sanctified submission. And verse 15 reads, For such is the will of God, that by doing right, you silence the ignorance of foolish people. In all the structures that God has in place, God is sovereign, and he, and, uh, he, he has sovereignly installed them. I'd like to give some context to what, the, what, was, uh, what, what was going on in the early church and what they were encountering and, and how the truth of this text was displayed in a man named Stephen. Uh, let me show you in Acts 6 uh, what they were contending with. If you would please turn there, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. And while you're turning there, let me give you some background. You're going to Acts 6. Stephen was one of those seven deacons chosen among the early church to settle a conflict around favoritism. Favoritism is a great offense to God and does not belong in the church. We read starting in verse 1 through 6. I hope you're there. I love to hear the pages rustling. It's so good. Now at this time, as the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint developed on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the 12 summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God 
in order to serve tables. Instead, brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The announcement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And they brought these men before the apostles, and after praying, they laid hands on them. That text helps us where the, where, to see where the early church was and gives insight um, t- that we will return to later when we talk about loving the brotherhood. Jump down to verse 8. It says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. Listen to this. But they were unable to cope with his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, this man does not, uh, does not stop speaking against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the council stared at him, and they saw his face, which was like that of an angel. So here, there are five lies that, that were noise created by these ignorant people. Remember that verse, it's, it reads... For such is the will of God that by doing right, you silence the ignorance of foolish people. In chapter 7, these these five lies, that he blasphemed Moses, that he blasphemed God, that he threatened to tear down the temple, that he threatened to abolish the law, that he threatened to change the customs. They, They basically said, this guy's coming to destroy you. He's coming to reshape everything. He's everything you are, he's attacking. And they were all lies. And this is what the enemy does. This is the noise that needs to be silenced. So in chapter 7, Stephen then pleads to those in the governmental positions by speaking the truth to them. He told them where they had gone wrong so that their souls would be saved. His interest was in saving their souls. He gives them a history lesson that starts with Abraham extending all the way to David and finishes with the true indictment that they killed the righteous one, Jesus Christ. Flip over to verse 54 and 58 and we'll read the outcome of this account of Stephen. Verse 54 says, Now, when they heard this, they were infuriated And they began gnashing their teeth at him. If that's not putting them to silence, I'll tell you, like this is, this is recorded to show us how the proper conduct of of what it is to be a Christian in a, in a, in a government system that is against you. Stephen's a class example. 
But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, looked intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they shouted with loud voices and covered their ears and rushed at him with one mind. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside, listen to this part, laid aside their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Sounds familiar. Then he fell on his knees and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. That also sounds familiar. Having said this, he fell asleep. In this faithful example of Stephen, we see a kingdom citizen who truly lived out 1 Peter 2, 11 through 17. Notice how Luke records Saul in verse 58. That man, Saul, was an ignorant, foolish man who was silenced. And because of the good deeds of men like Stephen, will glorify God on the day of visitation recorded in 1 Peter 1.12. Think of how many other souls were redeemed because of Stephen's faithful submission to God and man for the purpose of winning souls. Let's return back to our main text in 1 Peter 2, verse 15. Hopefully you have your thumb there. It reads, For such is the will of God, that by doing right, you silence the ignorance of foolish people. The sovereign standard is that the redeemed have a responsibility to do what is good or right, and the lies and slander against the believer will be muzzled. Our last point before we move to application will be the sanctified standard. Previously, I had, I had mentioned that there are eight charges to the believer in five verses, uh, but more specifically, there are seven in these last two. The first of the seven charges is that as the born-again believer is to, verse 16, act as free people. What Peter, what Peter is indicating is that all believers were once ignorant foolish people. If you look back to chapter one, you'll, you'll be reminded that God, the father of Jesus Christ, blessed himself by expressing his great mercy. He took souls that were utterly ignorant and disobedient and caused them by his own will to be born again to a living hope and obedience to Jesus Christ. We're told in chapter one, verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance. This is where you were. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, we are told, Therefore, rid yourself of all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. This is the nature. This is the performance. This is the, the mind of a dead soul. Ignorant, disobedient. In chapter 2, verse 11, we're told, Beloved, I urge you as foreigners and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. These are the behaviors of, of dead, ignorant, foolish, disobedient souls. The outpouring of salvation should be an overflow of what God's great mercy has brought to life in us. And that's life. So Peter, why so many warnings? You, you say we're obedient. This is how I engage with the text, by the way. I, I, I ask the, the text, how do, what, what does that mean? 
right? So I asked Peter, why so many warnings? You say we're obedient children and kingdom citizens. Well, let's read on in chapter 2, verse 16, and hear what the Holy Spirit has to say through our brother Peter as the second of the seven charges. Why so many warnings? It reads on, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil. I see. Like it says in 1 Peter 4, 5, you can turn there, Peter 1, 4, 5, it says, we have obtained an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And then go down a little bit to verse 23. It says, for you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. So that means that having been born again, Christ's death and resurrection was sufficient for all my past sins, all my present sins, and even my future sins. That could easily be misused as a license to practice evil. That's what all, that's what all the warnings are for because what has been granted to every believer is that powerful. And may it never be used that way. Let's read on in verse 16 for the third of the seven charges. It says, but use it as bondservants of God. This is the freedom that's been afforded to you. Use it as bondservants of God. So back to the the battlefield of the mind. To use the great mercy of God the Father correctly, we must know what we are. We are slaves. Slaves that have been purchased from the the former master of disobedience, resulting in death, and now slaves to obedience, resulting in righteousness. We were bought through the power of God the Son and his submission to God the Father and have been given access to mercy beyond measure. This is not to be abused, but it is certainly to be used. So what do I use it for? This brings us to our fourth point in the outline, which is the application. I I know I messed up the verses. The scripture reference should show 17 by application. We'll look there. Uh, In verse 17, the fourth of the seven charges, it says, honor all people. This is what we use it for. So how does this mercy with beyond measure apply to me honoring all people? The word honor means to assign value. Assign value to all people? Well, what's the value of the guy who cut me off on the freeway? Or at the same time, the guy one inch from my bumper when I'm traveling 75? Or what's the value of the guy who shorted me money or or isn't even going to pay me at all for my services? What's the value of someone in the government that makes policies that create havoc? What's the policy of of someone I'm paying, who maybe even a politician who isn't doing their job? What's the value of a father or a mother who has abandoned their baby or a son or a daughter who has said adios? 
What's the value of a thief or, or murderer or an adulterer? Well, if mercy beyond measure is supposed to help me with this, I have to examine how it has worked in the past. And I just happened to know someone who was brought to new life through it. This guy. I was unworthy. I had no desire for righteousness. Anything good that I did was, a, was hypocrisy. A veil or cover for malice, deceit, envy, or slander. Maybe there's someone in this room or, or abroad today who can attest and can make that same confession with me. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So how does this mercy beyond measure apply to me honoring all people? Well, any one of the listed individuals among infinitely other people any other persons or situations could be a pending shareholder of God's love toward us. So using the power of mercy beyond measure, it enables you and me to recall how undeserving we were and how different we are now. The power enables us to be bold in prayer, petition, humble service, and gospel sharing even when our flesh is screaming for us to return to the ignorant and foolish ways. That's the power of the mercy beyond measure. So let's look back in verse 17 for the fifth of the seven charges. On all people, love the brotherhood. The same question applies. How does this mercy beyond measure apply to me loving the brotherhood? Far different from the honor that we are called to have towards all people is the love for those who have already been purchased and who are in the battle with you. Those of the church are to receive special favor and longing. They have been bought with the precious blood of Christ and we need to care for one another. We are a family, regard, guide, nurture, comfort, protect, clothe encourage, lift in prayer, forgive, confess to, grow together, witness together, the glories of Christ building his church. I could go on and on. Maybe I can bring Peter up here and he can just go on and on. Thank you for that presentation, by the way. Very moving. We are a family. To any family, there's structure and God has given us the church family. We have a very special event coming up on June 4th where the family of God here at COC will use the power of mercy beyond measure. Every member should have received an email with nominations for elders and deacons. This is a beautiful time and for us to partnership together and be a family. Your elders have followed the example of the early church that we read of in, in uh, Acts 6 in examining one another in the pursuit of holiness and have even nominated a new elder. The church body has selected deacons who they have examined, that you have examined, and the elders have affirmed them and are presenting them for your approval. This is the structure of the church and it's designed by God and his word. There's a great reward in submitting to it and a great sorrow to not 
This is a time for the church family here at COC to invest into one another. If there's a question about anyone's pursuit in holiness, please approach them directly in love and have a gentle discussion. Resist talking to anyone but the person who you want to see mature. There should be no surprise votes rejecting an elder or a deacon. That's a mark of failure to love the family of God. As a member of COC, this is a joy to to see membership increase, to see support growing, to see God's great mercy extending through the body, through the structure, as he provides more ability and opportunity to, to minister to those in our community. So let's, let's move on to the sixth of the seven charges. It is fear God. This is the sixth charge and it is the glue that holds this all together. This charge is not to honor God, though that would be appropriate. The charge is not to love God, but that's appropriate. We see both of those charges throughout scripture. The charge here specifically is to fear God. Many people struggle with the notion that we are to fear God. This certainly goes against what Hollywood would have us believe or, or any, anybody, any cult who's knocking on your door saying you can be part of the, to the pack. Um, but let, let's put this in context. Why would Peter tell us to fear God? Well, we have to ask the question, how does this mercy beyond measure apply to me fearing God? Well, looking back in verse 15, we can start to reflect on what we have already been instructed on. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you silence the ignorance of foolish people. God has expressed his will over his mercy. He has given it to, uh, to his purchased slaves, that's the believer, you and I, through the precious blood of the Son of God. He's called us to do what is good and right, to counteract against the words of the deed and deeds of the ignorant, foolish, disobedient slaves of death. To not fear God and to practice such things works against the will of God. Since God is the knower of all things, not bound by restrictions of time, space, material, or immaterial, God knows who will abuse his great mercy and who is abusing his great mercy. Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10 says, the heart is more deceitful than all else and it is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind to give to each person according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. That should send up some red flags. There are two examples that I want to share with you. One is of Peter in Matthew 16. You can turn there with me. In this moment, Peter says one of the most beautiful statements that ever fell from a man's lips in verse 15 through 16. I'll give you a second to get there. Verse 15, chapter 16 says, Jesus said to the disciples, who do you yourselves say that I am? Simon, Simon Peter, the guy who wrote this this passage through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 
You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Moments later, Peter received the tongue lashing of a lifetime in verse 21 to 23. Read with me. From that time, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and to suffer many things from the elders, chief priests and scribes, and to be killed and to be raised up on the third day. And yet Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, rebuking Jesus, the creator of the universe, the author and perfecter of life, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's purposes, but men's. Oh, if anything could weaken somebody's knees, it'd be the the God of the universe calling you the enemy of God, Satan himself. Why did he do that? Well, it was clear because his mind was not focused on God's purposes. It was focused on men. I, I, I just know Peter was thinking about that when he wrote this. The second example, we don't have time to visit, but during the early church, people were selling their properties to provide for brothers and sisters in Christ who were lacking. And a husband and wife named Ananias and Sapphira deceitfully claimed that they sold the property for a price and gave the fullness of that to the church. That was an outright conspiracy and lie against the Holy Spirit. God knew and God struck them down. This isn't, this isn't the Hollywood God that's circled with clouds and, and, and is just talk, talking calmly. And pe- no. This is a God who provides consequence to what deviates from his commands and abusing the, the mercy beyond measure. Because of God's expressed will of usage of his mercy beyond measure and his intolerance for evil uh, to be veiled by self-righteousness, we should fear God and use his mercy beyond measure correctly. Lastly, we come to the seventh of the seven charges. At the end of verse 17, it says, honor the king. The repetition of king in this passage draws the reader's attention back to the mention of king in verse 13, making the point that he is the one in authority. Having just expressed that we are to fear God, Peter is making the point that God is the ultimate authority and God has installed whatever the authority is in the life of the believer. We had mentioned that the word honor means to assign value. Well, knowing what Romans 13, 1 says, and we read that already, there's no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Remember that word instituted means created. We can assign the proper value to those in authority over us. It's noteworthy that 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17 finishes off with these two statements, fear God and honor the king. 
In the book of 1 Kings, God gave to King Solomon abundant wisdom and a discerning heart, riches and honor. It was promised to him conditionally if he walked in God's ways and kept his statutes and commands. Solomon took that blessing and he squandered it. In the book of Ecclesiastes, it explains how Solomon, being the king, did not honor the king of kings. He did not fear the king of kings. He went about and did what was right in his own eyes. In the book of Judges, it says that phrase, right in his own eyes. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This statement illustrates that with no authority, an extreme moral corruption occurs in people. When there's an absence of honor to authority, anywhere in the chain of authority, that institution will crumble from that leg down. Every member of an institution, whether it be government, the home, the workplace, or or church, if they lose sight of who the supreme authority is and disregard the fear of God, it will be evidenced in the dishonor of the authority. This is an extremely dangerous state of mind and will be evidenced by independent rogue thinking and behavior. Thank God that he's patient with us. If you find yourself resisting authority that is not in direct violation of God's statutes and commands, you're opposing the ordinance of God and you are setting yourself up to receive condemnation. In our boardroom at COC, uh, we desperately try to sanction time to read scripture and pray through it. In our last board meeting, we studied Solomon asking God for one request that God would guarantee to provide for. 1 Kings 3.9, it reads, So give your servant an understanding heart. This is Solomon's request to God. To judge your people, to discern between good and evil. For who is capable of judging this great people of yours? Solomon, he did well at first. But by 1 Kings 11, so 3 to 11, just in eight chapters, we read, Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him regarding this thing that he was not to follow other gods, but he did not comply with what the Lord had commanded. So the Lord said to Solomon, since you have done this, you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you. I will certainly tear the kingdom away from you and will give it to your servant. So, as we were reading and meditating on this, one of our brothers on the board pondered out loud, I wonder what Solomon could have asked for additionally to prevent him from losing his way. And I gave that a lot of thought and and it occurred to me that Solomon tells us as he concludes his diary of of loose living in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14, the answer. The conclusion, this is Solomon in the end of his diary, loose living diary. The conclusion when everything has been heard is, Fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Why do we fear God? Because he will bring every act to judgment regardless of who you are. You could be the king, you could be the serf. 
What Solomon should have asked for additionally was what God followed up with in the conditional statement. He should have asked that he would walk in God's ways and that he would keep his statutes and commands. Let us heed this human condition that we have to be, that we are prone to lose sight of the fear of God and his placement of us in the government, the home, the workplace, and the church according to his sovereign will. He's aware. He's involved intricately in your, in your life. He knows exactly who you are, where you come from, and he knows where you're going. But as you are where you are, submit to the Lord, fear him, keep his commandments, honor the king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word never ceases to surprise me in its depth. We thank you in this moment for the indescribable gift of your son, for his perfect submission that opens heaven's gates for the lost soul who has been purchased and redeemed as a child of God. We enter into your courthouse with praise because in your son there's no condemnation. Our place is eternally secure with you. Lord, we still, fall, we still live in a fallen world and we wrestle with the flesh. Please help us to recognize our former miserable, wretched state of deadness and slavery to sin. And we celebrate now having been brought to new life, but we recognize that there's, so, there's, a, there's a battle ahead of us and a battle that we're in. Lord, help us to bond to one another. Help us to, to grapple with one another. Uh, help us to push off the flesh and these earthly lusts. There's so many others who don't know you, Lord. Let us be an example let us, by our love for one another and our submission to those around us, set the model that you set for them. Let them see your inner workings in our hearts pour out through our hands, our feet, our knees. They've never experienced your mercy beyond measure. May your children fall on your son and his amazing example of willing submission. Give us this confidence to submit to situations that can be adverse and recognize your sovereignty in them. Give us minds that are set on your purposes and cause us to reject what our flesh screams and gnashes at so that we may, be fe we may fear you and obey your commandments. Thank you for this time to open your word. May it have its washing and maturing effect on our hearts for righteous living. In Jesus' name, we pray.